Go ahead and get started, 7.15, welcome everybody. Down to our last few weeks in our study of the book of Daniel. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 10 and then maybe uh, some chapter 11 as well, we'll see, because chapter 10 is fairly short, but as I say, we'll see. And Daniel chapter 10 is in this latter portion of the 12 chapters of Daniel, which deal specifically with the future for God's chosen people, Israel. So you remember the layout of the book of Daniel. The first chapter sets the scene with uh, God's people being taken captive into Babylon. Daniel is one of those captives as a, a teenager. And then from chapters 2 through 7, God gives an overview of world history with a, a couple of uh, images in chapters 2 and, and 7. And then in uh, chapters 3 and 6, God uh, comf- seeks to comfort his people by his power to protect them. And so Daniel in the uh, lion's den and the uh, three uh, Hebrew children in the fiery furnace and then God's control over human leaders in chapters 4 and 5 with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and his humbling of both of those kings. So chapters 2 through 7 uh, are about God's control over uh, world events and his uh, comfort and care for his people even in the midst of, of difficulty. But then beginning in chapter 8, there's a transition to focus not on world events but on specifically how Israel fits into the future and into those world events. And now we come to chapter 10, and through the end of the book, we have that same theme. Chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So what is the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia? Well, he became a king. He overtook Babylon in 539 B.C., So the third year, depending on if you do them inclusive or not, is either 537 B.C. or 536 B.C. So 536 or 537 uh, B.C. is what's referenced in that first line, the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And in 536, 537 B.C. then, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. So that was the name given to him, you remember, early on as a teenager taken captive in Babylon. He and the others were given Babylonian names. And here, now all the way into chapter 10, we're reminded that he's still in captivity. He's still in a foreign land, and he still has this, this this foreign name. So right at the outset, we're reminded of the, the context of this revelation that God is going to give. It's captivity of Daniel in Babylon, including him still having this, still having this name. Now, in 536-537 B.C., bear in mind that just uh, two years uh, earlier, in the first year of Cyrus, which is also the first year of Darius, uh, the first, that Gabriel had given Daniel a uh, a view of what was going to happen with Israel. We saw that last week in chapter 9. And, uh, and Daniel was told by Gabriel that 70 weeks are determined upon thy, thy people. 
and then gave six things in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24 that in those 70 uh, weeks of years, those 70 periods of seven are going to, that are going to occur. So we saw that uh, last week, and that was just two years prior to this that Gabriel gave that, gave that uh, prophecy, that prediction to, to Daniel. And at that, at that time, and so by this time, uh, some of the exiles that were in Babylon have started to be able to go back to uh, Israel and uh, rebuild even the temple the foundations for the second temple, first temple, Solomon's temple, but now the second tem- temple under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel. Uh, and you can read about him in Ezra, Ezra chapter 3. So this is all that's taking place now in this third year of the reign of, of Cyrus. And this is all that's going on in Daniel's mind and in his life that he's been told by Gabriel a couple years earlier that we saw in chapter 9, this, uh, this, this future for uh, Israel. And some of the exiles have begun to be able to go back. The foundations are being laid back in Jerusalem for the rebuilding of, of the temple. All of that's going on. And so that then raises a question, at least for me, why is Daniel still back in, in Babylon? If people have started to go back, why is he still in Babylon? And the answer is probably twofold. One, he's old at this point. He's in his 80s. He came as a teenager, and we're now uh, 70, years, 70 years later. So in his, he's in his mid-80s. So one, he's, he's old. But also, uh, he has uh, still work to do. For those who are still left, uh, like himself, not everybody, but rather a remnant, has gone back to Jerusalem. And so there are still exiles back in Babylon, and God still has uh, work for him to do in, in comforting, comforting them and on their behalf. And he is part of the government, remember, as, as well. And in fact, as we're going to see as we read on here in a moment, Daniel finds himself near the uh, Tigris River, which is 35 miles from Babylon. So he's 35 miles away from uh, the center of government in that area, uh, and probably he's 35 miles away on government business. So he's old. Uh, He's not back in Jerusalem with some of the exiles that have been able to go back, but he knows all of this is going on. He knows that they've started to go back. He knows that the temple is beginning to be rebuilt, the foundations laid, and that's all that's uh, going on and all that's on his, his mind. So in the first verse, third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. Its message was true, and it concerned a great, a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in, in a vision. Now, it says the understanding of the message. So Daniel understands this message. And do you remember that other messages, revelations he's gotten? He, he didn't. But this one he, he does. He, he understood what it meant. Uh, without an interpretation. He's reminded that it's message, and he reminds those uh, that he's giving this prophecy to, that the message is, is true because it's, as we're going to see, from God. And it concerns the content of the message is a great, a great war. Daniel had already learned 
We've seen in chapter 7 and 8 and 9 of all kinds of conflict that's going to occur surrounding God's people in the end times. And so now here again, he's been giving a message of a great war, and we'll see what that great war is about. But uh, he's seen in Daniel 7 and 8 and 9 prophecies about uh, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember, we talked about him and uh, him uh, uh, desecrating the, the temple. He's already seen some of that. He's going to see some, some more of that about Antiochus, about the little horn, which is Antiochus, that in chapter 8 arises in the time of the third kingdom, that is the Greek kingdom. But now he's going to learn of further, further conflict. In fact, not just conflict, but a different kind of conflict, angelic conflict. Not just earthly conflict, but now spiritual war. So he's already been prepared for conflict and war and difficulty for God's people, but now he's going to see that behind that is angelic conflict, spiritual war, that is behind the wars and the conflicts between Israel and other nations. And as we go into chapter 11, between the endless conflicts between the kings of the north and the south, north of Israel and south of Israel, south of Israel in Egypt, north of Israel in Syria, and yet behind all of that is this, uh, is this angelic spiritual conflict. And chapter 1 says Daniel, unlike in the past, he understood this message. Now, do you all remember that in First uh, uh, Peter chapter 1, I think we saw First Peter chapter 1, uh, a few weeks ago, but it speaks of the prophets and their, the way they understood the prophecies that God gave them. And I just want to remind you of that. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Notice what they were trying to figure out, the time and the, and the circumstances. And so they would either understand immediately, like Daniel does in this one, or they would have an interpretation given to them. So they understood what it was they were writing, but they didn't understand all the implications of what they were writing. Uh, they didn't understand exactly when this was going to happen. They just knew it was going to happen. They didn't understand all the circumstances, necessarily, that were going to surround its happening. They just knew, again, as I say, that it was, that it was going to, to happen. And so that's what you have in verse 1, Daniel chapter 10. That's Daniel's mindset. That's all that's going on in this third year of Cyrus' reign. And it says in verse 2, At that time I, Daniel, mourned for three, for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat, or wine touched my lips. I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were, were over. Now, it says, uh, I mourned, verse 2, for three weeks. Uh, if any of you have a, a King James Bible, you may remember that in Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, Gabriel says to Daniel, uh, in the King James it says, 70 weeks are determined on thy people. Seventy weeks. And in the NIV, it says, 
Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 says, Seventy sevens, and the sevens is in quotation marks. Seventy sevens are determined on thy people. So in the King James, 70 weeks, and if you read 70 weeks, I read 70 weeks, I'm thinking 490 days, right? And the reason the NIV says 77s is because in Hebrew, uh, it actually just says that. It just says 70 periods of seven, something. And the context has to tell you if it's 70 periods of days or years. And the context is years. And as we saw last week, 490 years actually fits what is predicted there. 483, 69 of those periods of seven take you to the crucifixion of Jesus in 33 AD and you've got one period of seven years hanging out there still to be fulfilled that the Bible calls the seven-year tribulation. So in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, Hebrew literally just says 70 sevens, 70 periods of seven. And here in verse 2 of Daniel 10, it literally says uh, 70 periods of seven days, 70 weeks, and it adds of days. So that's why the NIV is right when it says in 924, 77s instead of 70 weeks. And it's right when it says in chapter 10 and verse 2, three weeks here because it's referring to 21 days. And the Hebrew actually says that. It actually uh, says three weeks and then clarifies. It wants you to know it's a period of seven days, three of these. So it adds of days, which implies strongly, does it not, that because the of days piece is missing in chapter 9 and verse 24, it's not talking about 490 days. Otherwise, it would have said of days like it does, does here. So it's making very clear that it's talking about a three-week period. And these, um, these uh, three weeks, notice when they ended. Verse 4 says, on the 24th day of the first month. So he says, I had this three-week period when I was in mourning, and I fasted. And they ended on the 24th day of the first month. Now, the, that means that this three-week period where he's, he's mourning covered the period of the Passover. Passover occurs once a year, and guess when? In the first month. So the reason that, part of the reason that Daniel is giving this time period, it was three weeks, 21 days, and those 21 days ended on the 24th day of the first month. And it's in the the first month uh, of the year that the, that the Passover occurs. And so Daniel's fast crossed over with the, with the, uh, the Passover. And he, so it just, you get Daniel's mindset here now, right? He's an old guy. He's been given all these visions by God about, and about God's future for his people. He's been told, we saw last week, that the captivity is to last 70 years, and we're at the end of that 70 years. People have started to go back. He's not going back with them. He is, um, and yet, he finds himself in he's mourning. Why is he mourning? 
You might think he would be rejoicing completely, but he's, he's mourning and he's fasting. Well, part of it is, is because if you were to read Ezra, Ezra chapter 3 talks about the remnant going back, Zerubbabel leading them to build the second temple. Ezra chapter 4 talks about the difficulties that they had. And those difficulties have undoubtedly filtered back to Daniel. And so Daniel has got God's people on his mind, clearly. This fast is occurring during the period of the annual Passover, the highest celebration in, uh, in Judaism. And uh, the people have started to go back, and he's hearing rumblings about the difficulties, according to Ezra chapter 4, that they're having back there. And so for all of that, that explains why he's in mourning and why he is, um, why he is, is fasting as well. And verse 4 then says, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. So I had mentioned earlier that the Tigris is 35 miles from Babylon. So he's 35 miles away. He's probably gone there on government business. And he's standing on the banks of the uh, Tigris. And he has this, this revelation. Now, um, this is really Daniel, not Daniel in a dream. He's actually there 35 miles away on the banks of the, uh, the Tigris. And so he's physically there. And the Tigris, you guys remember the Tigris in the Bible? Um, starts like really early, like chapter 2 of Genesis. <laughs> so the Garden of Eden is described in Genesis chapter 2. And it's given uh, four rivers that go through the garden, two of which are the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the Tigris and Euphrates are right here. And he's on the banks of the, the Tigris. Now, um, exactly where the Garden of Eden was located, I don't know. Nobody else does either, except the Lord. But it does give that, Moses, you know, who wrote Genesis, does give these rivers and the names of at least two of them we know as current places. And this was a known river at the time of, of Daniel as well, the Tigris and Euphrates, same today, in the area that's now Iraq. Uh, now, the reason I say we don't know exactly where the Garden of Eden wa was, though, is because something big happened between Genesis 2 and, and the time of Daniel that kind of upsets topography and messes, messes the terrain up, and that would be the, the flood of, of Noah. So how, how much that messed up the topography as it relates to the Tigris and Euphrates, we, we just don't know. It is interesting to me, though, that uh, where Babylon currently is in modern-day Iraq, where the Tigris and Euphrates are, is also, also the area known as the Fertile, the fertile Crescent. And, um, and so you, you have the Tigris mentioned previously, the Great River, um, and that's where Daniel finds himself, 35 miles from, from Babylon. And there he has this this uh, revelation. Verse 5, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs 
like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Well, whoever this is is fairly impressive. <laughs> so who is this that's being described there? Uh, you might immediately conclude, and, and not necessarily er- erroneously, um, this is an unidentified person other than this description, but this description sounds very much like what John saw, who John saw, in Revelation chapter 1. In fact, if you were to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. In chapter 1, he's... given this uh, vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. And then down in verse 12, John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And this is Jesus that John saw. So as you read Daniel's description of who it was he saw on the banks of the, of the Tigris, it sounds very much like the same person that John saw. And so it may well be that he saw a pre-incarnate, pre-before, incarnate became flesh. So he saw a vision of Jesus prior to the incarnation, prior to him coming as man. And we see this a number of times in Scripture where the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, a messenger from the Lord, is said to be the Lord. <laughs> and most, including myself, think that's a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Jesus. So, unidentified, but whoever this is, this is a marvelous sight of this person, and it may well be the Lord Jesus now. The reason that becomes uh, that identification becomes problematic, though, is as we read on, you'll see that you then go to either the same person that he saw speaking, or you go to a different person, and it's hard to tell who's now speaking a different angel, but whoever it is, if it's the same person as he saw in verses 5 and 6, or a different person, whoever that is, they needed help. Because the archangel Michael, we're going to see, had to come and help this, this person later. And so that's why some people say that couldn't be Jesus, because Jesus doesn't need Michael's help. Okay? So for now, just that description sounds very much like Jesus, like John saw in Revelation chapter 1. And then we'll see what the possibilities are for who this actually is in just a minute. So look at verse 7. I, Daniel was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. <laughs> so, 
So he's on the banks. He, you know, he's apparently on government business. He's out there, and then he, he sees this, and he's got people with him, and they don't see the vision, but they're nonetheless terrified, and they, and they leave. They run and hide. So what's, what's going on with, with those guys? Well, uh, it may be that some of them had been with Daniel when he had these visions in chapter 7 and 8. Do you remember what happened to him then? I mean, the Bible says he was, he was just seized uh, that he, uh, uh, in, in such a way that it was uh, a terrifying sight. And they may have seen that then, anticipated this is happening again, <laughs> and we're getting out of Dodge. In fact, um, Daniel describes what happened to him in verse 8. I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. So these other people see that. <laughs> they may have seen something like that in chapters 7 and 8, but it scared them, and they took off. So they don't, they don't see the vision. Now just ponder that for a bit. Here's Daniel. He sees it. They're with him. They see him. They're scared of that. That's enough to scare them. They take off. And you've seen this same kind of thing uh, before in the Bible, um, or later in the Bible. Uh, Saul is on the road to Damascus, you remember, in Acts chapter 9. And Saul is going to persecute God's people, and he has an encounter with Jesus there. And he is struck down, and Jesus speaks to him. And Saul using his Roman name later, Paul, uh, recounts what happened. You, you have the account of what happened in Acts chapter 9, and then you have Paul's recounting of what happened in Acts chapter 22. And if you put those two together, Acts 9 and Acts 22, Paul says, I had companions with me. But they didn't, they didn't hear the voice. They didn't understand what was going on. But they were scared because they knew something big was going on. So I'm the only one who really, who really got this thing, but there are other people with me. Similar kind of thing is, is happening to, to Daniel here. You have another instance of same kind of thing happening in the life of Jesus when he walked the earth in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, the Bible says, The Father spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And you know, Jesus heard the voice. But then people around were wondering what happened. They didn't know what was said. In fact, John records in chapter 12, I think in verse 29, some thought it had thundered. So, so what's going on with all that? Um, you know, Jesus said in John chapter 10, when he talks about himself as the great shepherd, he said, my sheep, what? You see, God has to turn the light on for people to hear and for people to understand. And if that doesn't happen, people can be present for the exact same thing and not hear it. And that happens, as you guys have heard me beat on now for the last several weeks, that happens every time the gospel goes forward. People hear the same thing. But only my sheep hear my voice. Only those who have the light turned on actually hear it. That's why. Hear it for what it is. That's why 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27. 1 John 2, 
20 and 27, speaks of the anointing that believers have from the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to be taught because without the light being turned on by the Holy Spirit, you don't understand. You have the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not receive the things that come from the Spirit of God, the Bible says. And so the Spirit has to turn the light on, and that's why you often find in Scripture people hearing the same thing, they're present for the same thing, but they don't get the same thing out of it. And it happens every time the gospel goes forward as well. They're hearing the same thing, but they don't get the same thing out of it. And so that's what Daniel's saying when he says, you know, I was left alone. Um, and because they had all, they had all hid. And this uh, reminds me at least a bit when he says I was, I was left alone of how Jesus uh, was left alone, you may remember, in, in the garden. And um, Paul uh, records that uh, after he had suffered all of his pers- a number of his persecutions, that uh, only Luke is with me. Do you, remember, do you remember him saying that? So here you've got now Daniel. I'm, I'm, I'm left alone. And all of my uh, companions have, have fled. All right, then uh, in the midst of this, verse 10, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. All right, so remember I said, verses 5 and 6, that sounds like a description of Jesus. And uh, it may well be. But this, this person, if it's the same person in verse 10, the hand that touches him says, I've been sent to you. Now, that's still a possible description of Jesus. But it sounds more like, in fact, he says, Daniel, you're highly esteemed. Do you guys remember that language from anywhere? Gabriel said that same thing to him back in chapter 9. Daniel, you're highly esteemed. And says, I've been sent to you. In fact, you started praying, and I was sent. Chapter 9. Remember we talked about how he got, <laughs> he got there pretty quick. <laughs> so this, this hand that touched him, and here's the possibility. And we don't know, but it's possible that on the one hand, in fact, the vision he saw was Jesus. But now, the hand that touched him is another angel. Okay? Um, and, but in any case, someone is sent, an angelic being, or Jesus, is sent to encourage Daniel. And he says, consider carefully the words that I'm about to, to speak to you. And he says, I've been sent uh, to you. And he just says, you know, I've been sent to you. And he's been sent to Daniel before Daniel does anything. I mean, Daniel's just there on the Tigris. Daniel's, I mean, he's been fasting. He's been mourning for 21 days. But this angelic being doesn't have to wait until Daniel asks. 
He knows what he needs. He's, he's there. And so he comes to encourage and to, to help Daniel. And then he went on to give his message to, to Daniel. He says in verse 12, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. And so, you know, here I am since the first day. Well, it's been three weeks. So what took you so long? I mean, Gabriel got here pretty quick. (laughs) It's back in chapter 9. You know, what are you, uh, Jimmy Stewart's angel? You know, (laughs) kind of clumsy. It took you three weeks to, uh, to get here. And he actually says what happened, and this is the really weird part. The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. So you clearly got, at minimum, an angelic being coming to, to Daniel. And yet says, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for a period of 21 days. Daniel's been fasting for 21 days. So I was sent as soon as you started. And yet, it's taken 21 days for me to actually show up. And not only that, it gets weirder. Middle of verse 13, then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So this is the reason that I don't think that whoever touched him and whoever's saying this is Jesus, because Michael is helping whoever this is. Michael, one of the chief princes, Michael the archangel, chapter 12 calls him, helped me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Yikes. So what's, uh, what is going on with, with that? Well, um, Daniel is uh, fasting. He's on the banks of the Tigris. His prayer has been heard. He's, this, this angelic being has been dispatched and yet has been detained uh, by, for, for 21 days because of someone called the Prince of the Persian Kingdom. So who is this Prince of the Persian Kingdom? Well, uh, this is another, and I'll explain why, but this is another angelic being, but an evil angelic being that is contending with this angel that is sent to minister to Daniel. This is not the king of Persia. The king of Persia, a human king, doesn't stand a chance against an angelic emissary from the Lord. So that's one of the reasons that this is an angelic being and, um, and, and an evil angelic being because he's intending, contending with this angel of, of the Lord. Now we see this in Scripture from time to time, don't we? Uh, Jude 9. Jude 9. Now I say just Jude 9 because there's only one chapter in Jude. So it's Jude verse 9. <laughs> and Jude verse 9 says that uh, Michael, the archangel, and, and Satan contended, disputed over the body of Moses. Who's going to get Moses' body after he dies? Jude 9 tells us that. And Michael wins by simply saying, the Lord rebuke you. That's what Jude 9 says. So this kind of angelic contest, good angel and evil angel, is recorded in in Scripture. You see Satan as the evil angel, 
and then his emissaries, demons, evil angels, contending with God at different points in Scripture, right? So, first chapter of Job, you know, Job goes for 42 chapters, but the behind the scenes of those 42 chapters is in the first, the first chapter. And you read about everything that befell Job, and Job is never told about the first chapter. You get to read the first chapter. I get to read the first chapter. We know what's going on. But we're like the people watching the TV show that know that there's somebody lurking behind the door, and we're going, no, don't open that door. You know? But that person doesn't know it, but we know it. And Job didn't know all that had happened, but we read. We read about it in chapter 1. And what happened? You know, here comes Satan, presents himself before the Lord. Now, you just, you know, read Job 1, but just think about the fact that Satan is presenting himself before the Lord and giving an account to God. And God says, where have you been? And I've been roaming throughout the earth to and fro. And, um, and then God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? God's the one who brings up Job's name. <laughs> now, Job undoubtedly has had a few words with the Lord about, <laughs> why did you have to bring me into this? <laughs> Why did you have to bring up my name? It's not Satan who brings up Job. It's God who brings up Job. God has this whole plan, and, and Satan you know, wants to show that Job only serves God because of what God gives to him. You take the gifts away, and he will curse you. And God says, you're on. You can take away all this stuff, but you cannot kill him. You must, he must survive. That's exactly what happens, and we know the, the rest of the story. But here's this contest between Satan and, and God. So with all of that, uh, what it means is, is that God, now hear this carefully, God limits himself, limits himself with respect to the forces of evil in the world. Let me say that again. He limits himself regarding the forces of evil in the world. Think about it. If God did not limit himself with regard to evil in the world, then there would be no evil, true? I mean, if God unleashed all his power against evil, there wouldn't be any. And he will do that. And there won't be any. <laughs> but he's not doing that now. And so now, he, in various degrees and at different times, limits himself with regard to to the forces of evil in the world. And so you see that in what he allows Satan to do with regard to Job. You see that uh, with regard to the power that was given to Satan to resist Moses when Moses stood before Pharaoh. Do you remember Jesus uh, going to uh, cast out demons out of a man who was possessed by many demons? And do you remember those demons speak to Jesus? The demons speak to him. Have you come to torment us? Does anybody remember the rest of it? Before the appointed time. I mean, they know there's an appointed time. They know their days are numbered. But for now, God limits himself with regard to the forces of evil in, in the world. And so, God has given temporary authority to evil in the world. It'll all be destroyed in the end, 
but he has limited himself. And that's the only way that these demonic forces could have any power at all. And so that is why you have statements like 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that says Satan is the, quote, God of, what does it say? He is the God of this world, small g. Because God is allowing him to do that. You get to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. But then the Bible says he will be loosed for a short period. And then finally he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Well, who binds him and who looses him? It's God. So there would be no evil, and, and so God allow, is allowing evil for his purposes in limited variety, temporarily, until the, until the end, and it shows up in encounters like this, or in Satan and Michael disputing for the body of, of Moses. Luke uh, 22, Luke 22, when Jesus is arrested. I mean, how did Jesus ever get arrested? I mean, that's God limiting, right? I mean, God's letting this happen. Otherwise, Jesus ain't getting arrested, let alone nailed to a cross. <laughs> Only if God allows it is this happening. And Jesus is arrested. And verse 52, Luke 22, verse 52, Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Now, every day I was with you and you didn't lay a hand on me. Do you know why they didn't lay a hand on him? Because he didn't allow them to. And do you know why they're laying a hand on him now? Because he's allowing them to. This is your hour. And you only have your hour because I'm letting you have your hour. But notice it's your hour. It's not forever. It'll be a temporary period of time. And so that's what you see going on in this battle between the prince of Persia and, a, and an angel, this evil angel that has been now assigned <laughs> to Persia. And this other angel that was detained 21 days. So you go, there's evil angels that are assigned, they've been given assignment? Yeah. And so do you remember in the New Testament the definitive passage in the New Testament that speaks to spiritual warfare is in Ephesians 6. And this is what Ephesians 6 says. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Put on, therefore, the full armor of God, it goes on to say. Now that just gives you a quick glimpse and what we're seeing in Daniel chapter 10 is that curtain kind of pulled back. And there is this spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes. And it's going on behind the scenes. Therefore, it means you don't see it very often. 
directly. You just see the effects of it. You see the very stark effects of it sometimes, and so then we're shaken out of our lethargy and we're reminded of it. You know, so then when there's a bombing at a marathon, we're like, wow, there's evil. <laughs> we're reminded of that. Or when there's all the just unspeakable stuff that has gone on in an abortion clinic in Philadelphia that the media doesn't want to cover, but just absolutely unspeakable infanticide, infanticide, killing babies born alive in botched abortions over and over. And this is horrible. I can't say any more about it because it's that horrible. But, you know, then we're reminded, wow, evil. But the Bible gives us these glimpses that behind the effects of evil that we see in the human realm, that there are spiritual forces at, at work, and not only at work, but at war. So there is a war going on. And in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13, you see a piece of that. An evil angel called the Prince of Persia that has been assigned because Satan, the captain, has his emissaries that he sends for certain projects and certain tasks. And this evil angel was sent for the task of um, doing his work in the Persian kingdom and through the actual king and kings of, of Persia. In fact, notice, uh, notice this. It says in verse 13, back to verse 12, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding. Humble yourself before the Lord. Your words were heard. I have come in response to them, but the prince of the Persian kingdom... <clears throat> resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king. It says king of Persia. It is literally with the kings of Persia. It is plural. With the kings of Persia. And when it says I was detained there, it is I was left there. And that phrase, I was left there with the kings, plural of Persia, it's a, a word being left there that was used of someone left in a position of preeminence in a battlefield. And so <clears throat> here's Daniel having this angelic visitor, and he remains preeminent. He's the victor, ultimately. Michael has come, come to help. And it's the kings of Persia because that place of influence that this angelic visitor has, has won is going to continue with future kings of Persia. So Satan is going to have emissaries throughout the kingdom of Persia trying to have his will worked in that kingdom. Now this is, this is 536, 537 B.C. So if this is going to happen for the future kings of Persia, how long is that going to be? Well, uh, they're not going to be finally defeated by Alexander until like 332 B.C. So you've got a couple hundred years worth. A couple hundred years worth of demonic angelic beings that are involved in trying to influence the kings of Persia. And God has assigned an angel to make sure that God's 
will is carried out. And of course, God's will is always, always carried out. And then Greece takes over, and then the same thing is going to happen. As a matter of fact, that's predicted here a little bit later on, as we're going to see that there's going to be the prince of, of Greece that is coming as, as well, the next kingdom. An angelic being, an evil angelic being, assigned to try to influence the kingdom of, of Greece. All right, verse 14. <clears throat> now I've come to explain what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And while he was saying this to me, I bowed my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I'm overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I'm helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? Now, when he says, my Lord, you notice that's in, you notice it's small letters in the NIV. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean it's God. It just means uh, someone who's revered. Um, How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed. He said, peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. And so he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. So why the prince of Greece? Because that's going to be the next kingdom. And that's going to be the next then spiritual, spiritual battlefield. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. And now chapter 11 is going to go on and talk about um, in detail and really in laborious detail in some cases. Uh, Chapter 11 is going to talk about the kings of the north and of the south. You all see that in chapter 11? It says, uh, just before verse 2, there's a heading in my Bible. Do you guys have like a title? It says the kings of the north and the south. And so now for several verses, you're going to have teaching about the kings uh, that are from the north of Israel, that is Syria, and then the kings that are from the south of Israel, that is Egypt. So chapter 10 ends off with the prince of, of Greece... The, the prince of Greece, um, um, Alexander. <clears throat> and then it's going to talk in chapter 11 about what happens after Alexander. Now, we've already been told a bit about what happens after Alexander. You guys remember that um, there were four horns uh, that represented four kings that would come after Alexander because he had four generals that took over after he died. And we saw that in one of Daniel's other visions as, uh, as four winds. So these are the four generals that are going to take over for, for Alexander. And of those four generals, two of them became prominent. One in Syria and one in Egypt, north and, and south. And for years, they battled it out for supremacy of guess who's in between? Palestine, Israel, the promised land. So they, they battled it out for years. And 
as you read through chapter 11, it has allusions to all that's going to happen, including the intermarriage, the assassinations. It's the most detailed prophecy in all of Daniel about different people, about different things that are going to happen, but it gets really detailed. So I'm just going to give the description of it now, and then we can look at the details next week. But it's Syria to the north, Egypt to the south. For years, they battle for supremacy. There's all kinds of backstabbing. There's all kinds of kings that are deposed and killed and intermarriage and all of that. Until finally, um, Antiochus comes along. And Antiochus is the guy that we've seen mentioned several times now. And at the end of chapter 11, he's called the despicable king at the end of chapter 11. And he is the one who then goes into the temple, offers an abomination that causes desolation, offers a pig on the altar, puts an image in the temple of the Greek god Zeus, dedicates it to Zeus, forces God's people to eat pork, outlaws circumcision. I mean, it's just a, there's good reason he's called the despicable king. And chapter 11 talks about him. Now, with all of that, we'll look at chapter 11 then next week. But for now, uh, you see all of this happening and stuff happening behind the scenes in spiritual warfare. So what should you do with that? What should I do with that? How interested should you be in trying to identify spiritual forces and spiritual warfare going on? Um, my answer is not very. You see, the Bible every now and then peels that back and gives you a glimpse. Just to remind you that that's going on. It's going on right now. It's going on in ways we don't know anything about. You don't, you, this would be a good principle for you to live by. Don't worry about the stuff that God doesn't tell you you need to know anything about. Um, you know, in Hebrews chapter uh, 13, it says that, uh, that from time to time, uh, believers have entertained angels unawares. Do you guys remember that phrase? Unaware that these are angels that have actually approached me. Now, here's the key for it. Here's the key word in that: unaware. <laughs> so, don't worry about being aware. There's no way for you to identify that. So, you shouldn't spend a lot of time identifying that a specific spiritual force has done a a particular thing. But people read about Ephesians 6 and that there are spiritual forces in, in high places. And they read about Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13 and they think it's their job now to find all of these spiritual forces behind every bush. And the Bible simply just peels that back every so often to just tell you what's going on. I'm reminding you of that. And when you see in our realm evil happen, it's because evil exists. And there is a spiritual war going on between good and evil that will finally be absolutely victorious in, as God uh, stamps out evil. He could do that anytime he wants, but for his own purposes, he has delayed that. 
Now, why has he delayed it? I'm asking. What do you, why do you think he's delayed it? Two reasons. One, I alluded to it on Sunday morning. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, that evil allows God to display more of his character, to extend his glory in his world. That's one. Two, 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, and verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you read the verses before that, it says God is patient. And the reason he's patient is because he's not willing that any should perish. And so he's delaying that final judgment in mercy for people to come to him. So two things, it extends his glory. And in his patience, in his mercy, he's allowing people time to come to him. In the meantime, governments and kings and rulers think they really rule. But who really rules? God, and there are forces behind the scenes that these rulers know nothing about. And I leave you with this one uh, passage in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm number 2. Verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Now, this is one of the great verses in the Bible. (laughs) The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so the kings of the earth think that they are actually ruling. (laughs) And yet God is the one who installs kings and deposes kings. And behind the scenes, there is a battle going on that God could call victory on at any time he wants. And the one enthroned laughs. And you know... In the midst of all the difficulty, in the midst of all of the, all of the tragedy, there's a sense in which we can chuckle as well. And we can say, behind it all, I know God is victorious. We're going to pray and leave, but if that's true on a worldwide scale, it's true with the junk you have going on in your life as well. So think about your stuff. And it all of a sudden starts to look fairly small, doesn't it? In the hand of this God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to see spiritual warfare and allowing us to see that you are in control of this completely, that you are using spiritual forces for your ultimate purpose, to extend your glory, uh, to allow people to come to you. But you can, dec- you can execute victory anytime you please. And so, Lord, in the meantime, help us to remember that because we see the shrapnel. (laughs) We are hit by it, uh, living in a fallen world. Help us to remember that all of this is in your hand, and we, your people, are particularly within your care. Help us to remember that this week 
And we ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next week in the name of Jesus. Amen.